Christi gesittet. Often one of the questions that gets asked to celebrities in the back page interviews of many magazines is, which famous person or people would you like to invite to dinner? The Church Times each week plays a similar game by asking the person featured on the back page, famous or otherwise, who they would like to be locked in a church with. You might have played the game yourself at some point with friends or family. If you haven't, perhaps you could give it some thought later, as it often helps to distill the people you admire down to a handful and shows you where your priorities lie. Obviously, one of the people that gets mentioned a lot is Jesus. Oh yes, what a great idea. Let's get Jesus round the dinner table. After all, that's what he did with a lot of his time. I think he'd probably prefer to be round a dinner table than locked in a church. Maybe that's probably his nightmare. Or is getting Jesus to come and sit round the table really a good idea? Having looked at this passage set for this morning from the Gospel of Mark and the wider context of the whole chapter, I wonder if it's a good idea at all. Last week, we had Andrew, Peter, James and John being called on the beach at Galilee to follow Jesus. And they left everything they knew to go with him. Didn't even look back at Zebedee. This week, we see them entering into a private, in inverted commas, conversation with him. In the Gospels, when it says the disciples, it usually means all those who followed Jesus, not just the twelve. And often when Jesus is just with the twelve, the text will say something like, and he went with the twelve, or in the case of the transfiguration, garden and Gethsemane, and moments such as this, the disciples are actually named. We know who he took with him. Those four same disciples go with him this time, as were called last week. But... If we look at each of those times where a few of them go with him, all sidle up to him to ask a private, pertinent question away from the others, they always get a lot more than they bargained for. Today's passage is no exception. Peter, James, John and Andrew ask him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? They're asking Jesus' question in connection with that assertion that the temple, which is so enormous and beautiful, the seat of power for the Jews, the place on which all their heritage is built and maintained, will be destroyed. Jesus tells them it will all come crashing down. Everything you have put your faith in will come crashing down around your ears. Quite rightly then, I suppose, the disciples want to figure out if there is any, going to be any warning about this. If they see the warning signs, maybe they could stop the destruction. Maybe they could run away before it happens, or maybe they can set up a guard. How will we know, they ask. What they get in return is a whole treatise on persecution, desecration, false identity, War, famine, betrayal, and pain. I suspect at this point they wish they'd never asked the question. 
You can imagine them thinking, why don't we leave with the others? For Jesus' answer is not a comfortable one for them, and it certainly is not a comfortable one for us. Even if we contain ourselves and just look at those eight verses that we have been given this morning, three phrases stand out for me. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Number two, beware that no one leads you astray. Number three, this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Not exactly comforting stuff, is it? Not the meek and mild Jesus we sing about. And if you go on to read the rest of the chapter, which I would encourage you to do, things seem to get worse, not better. For Jesus says, for in those days there will be suffering such as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, no, and never will be. The one hopeful aspect is when he tells the disciples, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Overall, though, the promise of how we get to the sun returning and the road that needs to be taken isn't looking good. Maybe Jesus wouldn't be such a good guest to have around the table if he's going to talk about these sorts of things. Maybe we could skip past this passage and just focus on the miracles. You know, the good stuff, where he feeds people, turns water into wine. You'd want him around your table at that point, forgives people and heals them. Let's just focus on that. This Jesus is a bit too confrontational and honest for me today. But isn't Jesus provocative and honest in every situation? Isn't there always something he draws the attention of the crowd or the person he is with too? Grace is poured out for sure, but he doesn't do it without challenging those watching or criticising, healing the woman on the Sabbath, eating with sinners, allowing women to touch him, fetching tax collectors down from trees etc, etc, etc. All of it comes with a challenge to those he touches in return and especially to those who are not listening and not seeing what is going on in front of them. The challenge is especially strong to those who just want to keep the old ways that pour guilt upon the heads and shoulders of those who need grace. The temple in all its glory is a symbol of the hardness of heart that Jesus has been speaking about to his disciples already. It is this hardness of heart that needs to be destroyed. Those who claim to worship God need to not set their hearts on the bricks and mortar in front of them, but instead start to focus on the people around them. Jesus knows This is too strange and challenging a message for most. And the power of the world is greed, jealousy, disunity and discord, disagreement, bigotry and prejudice. All these things will lead to war, famine and persecution. We will destroy one another. We have and we do destroy one another. And even our own home for love of these things rather than love of one another and love 
of God. Today, we quite rightly come to remember the fallen of World War I and II, as well as the subsequent conflicts, such as the Falklands, the Gulf War and Afghanistan. We give thanks for those who have paid the ultimate price, defending our freedoms and standing for justice. But there is no getting away from the absolute tragedy of the loss of these people because we have not learned to put away our tools of hatred. As we look back and even look at the news today, we can easily see where nation and kingdom is rising against nation and kingdom. And it seems for all our talk of peace and reconciliation, our innate humanity always brings us back to discord. In many places, such as Afghanistan, conflict is now generational. So many generations have known nothing but conflict that it is now possibly impossible to stop it. So, are we seeing the end times, those times that Jesus talked about? Is this what Jesus is talking about when he says, keep awake? right at the end of the chapter. Is this our hope? Should we, as we remember and renew our commitment to peace, actually be thinking, oh, it's okay. This means Jesus will come sooner. I've heard and read people who believe this to be the case. The bottom line, of course, is no. Because we cannot... There is nothing we can do to force God's hand. God's timing is God's timing. It always has been and it always will be. God is time and space in all its enormity and mystery. There is no telling what God's timing will be like. What we see as we look around the world with all its devastation and destruction people displaced, poverty, disease, and a climate that is being suffocated is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Not very hopeful, as anyone who's ever given birth to a child will tell you, it gets a lot more painful in the hours ahead. Not something to look forward to then. We just come and remember each year and then we just go back to our own ways. Nothing really changes, does it? We stand here each year and remember, but maybe we don't actually go and do anything about it. So then what did those people die for? What did Jesus die for? If we don't actually do anything about it, if we don't go and live our lives in a different way. And it would be easy to be cast down it would be easy to say, well, you know, that's God's way, isn't it? Okay, this is the beginning of the birth pangs, right? Well, it's just going to get a lot harder and a lot more awful. So, well, hey, <laughs> shrug our shoulders and walk on by. There's nothing we can do. We'll just sit in the corner. But we are a people of resurrection and of hope 
even in the darkest, darkest moments. And that hope is to be found in the child, that as we turn into Advent in the next couple of weeks, we will be preparing to greet once more the child in the manger, the new creation. And our hope is in the new heaven and the new earth. Hope in a child born in a stable, placed into the arms of Mary and looked upon with love by Joseph. In that moment, time and space converge. The mystery is made flesh. God is with us. And then there's the hope of a man dying and suffering on a cross who then meets us in the garden of resurrection. Time and space converge. The mystery is given new flesh. The hope is to be found in the promise that Jesus will return and the powers of this world will be destroyed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, new flesh for all of us, and we will be part of it. Jesus knows that as we look out at the world and all its agony and pain, it would be very easy for us to get distracted and to lose that hope. He tells the disciples to watch out for false prophets, those who raise their voices and their standards over people and say, look, come this way. All down through history, there have been voices that have said, this is the right way. This is what we deserve. We must fight for what we believe in. But this is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is simplicity, love and hope. These are the things we are to fight for, but not in the ways we have been fighting. These are the things that will be left standing when everything else has crashed down around us. Do not build your life on the things that can tumble down, says Jesus, but on the things that cannot be shaken. Relationship with him, love of one another, simplicity of heart, generosity of mind. Jesus' last words to the disciples in this chapter are, stay awake. Stay alert to what he, our great high priest, has taught us. Stay alert to our faith and the mystery of it. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, is what we will say in a few moments' time. The utter mystery of what we believe in. Stay alert to what is happening in the world and fight for justice. Stay alert to one another and love one another. In the end, whether Jesus is talking about a time in history, 70 AD, when the temple in Jerusalem did indeed fall, today or sometime in the future matters not. For God is the past, the present and the future that is caught up in the broken bread and the wine outpoured, in the body broken for each of us and the whole of time and space is made whole in that moment. The whole mystery of God, the whole of all our memories, all our remembrance that we do together, made whole in that moment. Do this in remembrance of me, says Jesus. 
every time we do, we remember and bring to wholeness the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that will be. So when Heather this morning breaks the bread and says those words, that's what we're doing. We're remembering all that has been, all that is, and all that will be, and we're drawing it into that one moment, into the hope of Jesus Christ. Remember, stay alert and be hopeful. Amen.